the anatomy department, MD by training. And as I said, today I know that I'll be hitting you a lot of material. However, on Saturday, with the directed office hours, I will be having open hours from 8 until 11. And it will be an open hours where people can come and we can discuss some of the difficulties that you will have in this particular lecture. So this lecture, or this afternoon, I'm just going to orient you as to some of the key things we're going to go through. If you look at my slides, you'd realize that they're quite comprehensive. I may touch on everything on the slide. However, as I said, there is a lot of writing on the slides. All of the information is there. Is everyone hearing me clearly? Yes? All right, so let's give your colleagues some time to sit. So let's look at the objectives. So you have all of this. All right. So just as in the upper limb, you had different compartments. In the lower limb, you are going to be studying different compartments. And the same rule applies. So first of all, to define the lower limb, we have different parts. We have the thigh, which is from the hip region to the knee. We have the leg, which is from the knee to the ankle. And then we have the foot. So from now on, I don't, want to people, I don't want people to be referring to their lower limb as their leg or their foot. From here to here is thigh. From here to here is foot. Sorry, from here to here is leg. <laughs> Fall into my own trap, right? From here to here is leg. And then from ankle, you know, you're going to have your foot. Now, this is very, very important. The lower limb is actually one of the limbs that's actually frequently injured. It actually helps in stability. And as you can see on the diagram, when you're standing in the anatomical position, what you have happening is that your ASIS and your pubic tubercle, they are supposed to lie in the same plane. And your center of gravity is going to fall in between your feet in an imaginary circle that we're going to draw, which we're going to call your base. All right? So that becomes very, very important because once you are walking, you need to be able to have equilibrium. So what, we're gonna, what I'm going to demonstrate is that you have different phases of walking. So when you're walking, the first thing you do is that you push off on one foot. Okay. Now if you look at the push off, you can stand. So when you're pushing off, your foot is at an angle. So that's what we call plantar flexion. Okay. So as we push off, what happens next is that we have a swing phase. So I want you to remember that, the swing phase. So that's on this side. So those of you who can't see here, this is, the swing, this is the swing phase. And this is going to be very, very important as we'll see as the lecture goes on. So remember these two. You're going to have plantar flexion on one foot, swing phase. Okay, just remember those two things. And we're going to develop that as I go along in the lecture. So as we said, the lower limb is basically for stability and for locomotion. So it means, therefore, that the majority of the weight of the upper body, namely the trunk, is transferred to the hip joint and then to the lower limb. As you can appreciate here, you can see the vertebral column. You can see the pelvic girdle. And as I just said, weight is transferred from the vertebral column into the pelvis. And what I want you to remember or to pay particular note of is that here you have the femur, which will be the bone of the thigh. Here's the head of the femur, and here's the neck of the femur. So the connection between the pelvic girdle and the shaft of the femur will be this area here, which is called the neck of the femur. And that is very important because that's where you're going to have a lot of the stress of the different vectors occurring. So remember what I said. During the swing phase, we have one foot off the ground. And essentially, what we are doing when that happens is that we are actually standing on one leg. Everybody can appreciate that. So it means, therefore, that your weight is actually placed on one lower extremity because this one is off the ground. So your center of gravity is going to move. All right? So keep that in mind. We're going to develop that in a little bit. So what I'm saying here is that as you grow older, here you have this rung. It's going to get less and less strong 
because of age, you're going to have osteoporosis, you're going to have different diseases affecting it, and this is the area that is generally affected. Movements at the hip joint. So as we said, and you would have learned in anatomy, on the upper limb, when you are doing flexion, you are actually decreasing the angle. So flexion, you're bringing the lower limb, you're decreasing the angle between the hip and the lower limb. Extension, you're actually increasing the angle. You have dorsiflexion, which is the tip of the foot pointing up or toes pointing up, and then you're going to have plant flexion, which is extension. Okay? The other ones we have on the lower limb will be medial rotation, this greater toe or lower limb being turned inward. Remember, when we talk about medial, we're talking about towards the midline, and once we're talking about lateral, it means that this great toe is moving laterally. Okay? Medial towards the mid midline, lateral away from the midline. We also have adduction, adduction, and once we talk about adduction, we are bringing the limb towards the midline. Abduction, we're bringing the limb away from the midline. Okay, how I remember it? Abrir in Spanish means to open. So once you are abducting, you're opening up the angle. And once you are adducting, you are adding towards the midline. Okay? Simple stuff. So, let's look at just a reminder. We said that the lower limb is actually connected to the pelvic girdle. And in your mind's eye, you should be reminding yourself of what you had in your lectures concerning the pelvic wall. So we have different openings in the pelvis that will communicate with different regions which we will speak about today. So from your previous lectures, you would realize that this here is a greater sciatic foramen. And once you're passing through the greater sciatic foramen, you're going to end up in a gluteal region. Here is your lesser sciatic foramen. Once you're passing through there, you're going to end up in the perineum. You have the obturator foramen. Once you are passing through there, or vessels or structures passing through there, it's going to end up in the medial side. And then we have this here being the inguinal ligament, ASIS, anterior superior iliac spine, to the pubic tubercle. Structures which pass under that are going to end up in the anterior thigh. So you can see that that pelvis is actually um, a place where you can have the, the continuation of vessels that leaves the abdominal cavity and get into the gluteal or lower limb, gluteal region or lower limb. So let's look at a little bit of the osteology. So the bone that we're going to talk about, just as we talk about the humerus in the upper limb, we are going to be talking about the femur in the thigh. And from observation, you'd realize they have similar um, characteristics. So here we have an anterior view. And here you have the head of the femur. This is the shaft. And this is the neck. One or some features that I would like you to pay attention to. This great bump that you see here is going to be called the greater trochanter. One on the medial side is going to be called the lesser trochanter. And of note, the line that connects the greater trochanter to the lesser trochanter on the anterior surface is called the intertrochanteric line. On the posterior side, we have the greater trochanter once again and the lesser trochanter. However, the area between the greater trochanter and the lesser trochanter on the posterior surface is called the intertrochanteric crest. Here you can appreciate the gluteal tuberosity, the linear aspera, so the gluteal maximus is going to insert here, and the short head of biceps femoris is going to actually insert here. At the head of the femur, we have an opening where we have a ligament which helps stabilize that ball and socket joint, which we will talk about in a little bit, and it has an artery in it, all right, which comes from the obturator artery, and then a branch off of the internal iliac. Good. Once again, I want you to appreciate, so we are saying that the head and neck, they form like an L with a shaft, and this angle here between the shaft and the head and neck is called the angle of inclination. And that angle of inclination is going to be very important because we have different pathologies 
whereby we could have that angle being increased or it being decreased as the case may be. So, generally, that angle of inclination is between 120 degrees to 135 degrees. If, for some apparent reason, let's say there's a fracture or a pathological um, breakage or congenital abnormality, if the degree of this angle of inclination is less, that is called coxa vara. If you have an increase in your angle of inclination between the shaft of the femur and the head and neck of the femur, that is called coxa falga. Alright? Just make note of those terms. So like everything else, we're going to start from superficial and then we're going to go to the deep structures. So like everywhere else you have seen in the upper limb, thorax, abdomen, you're going to start with your su superficial structures. So in the superficial layers, you're going to have your loose connective tissue, you're going to have your fat, you're going to have your superficial veins, lymphatic vessels, etc. However, just as we learned in the upper limb, the lymphatics follow the veins. In the lower limb, the rules are basically the same. So here we have different veins. We're going to talk about the great saphenous vein and the small saphenous vein. So basically, here we can see the dorsal arch of the foot, the dorsal surface. So medially, these veins are going to collect and form, or be, form this vein here, which is called your great saphenous vein, which is going to run on the medial side of the leg, going to pass posteriorly to the knee, then run up along the medial side of the thigh, and then pierce into the fascia through an opening called the saphenous opening. And that or this vessel is going to drain into your femoral vein. We, so just as we have a great saphenous, we're going to have a small saphenous. So the small saphenous starts on the lateral side of the foot. It passes behind the, medial ma behind the um, lateral malleolus. It ascends posteriorly, the leg, and then it's going to pierce the fascia, or the deep fascia, of the leg, which is called the fascia cruis, and goes into this region here, which is going to be called your popliteal fossa. So what can we take away from that? It means, therefore, that lymphatic drainage from the dorsal aspect of the foot, the medial side of the leg, the medial side of the thigh, they are going to drain into a group of regional lymph nodes which is going to be called the vertical group of inguinal, or sorry, I should say the superficial vertical group of inguinal lymph nodes. How I remember it, the limb is vertical, so it means that if I'm draining upwards, I'm going to drain into the vertical group of inguinal lymph nodes. Which group? The superficial group. There's a deep group, and then there's a horizontal group. The horizontal group normally talks about what you have in the pelvis and in the gluteal region. The small saphenous, as I said, travels or collects venous blood from the lateral side of the foot. It ascends in the posterior leg. So it means, therefore, that lymphatic drainage is going to follow the vessel, in this case, the small saphenous, and it's going to drain into the popliteal region. And in the popliteal region, you have a group of lymph nodes, regional lymph nodes, and lymphatic vessels are going to stop there first. And once deep, they stay deep. What do I mean by that? From the popliteal lymph nodes, they are going to travel along the deep veins of the thigh. And they are going to drain into the deep group of vertical inguinal lymph nodes. Your deep fascia, which is connective tissue, forms a stocking-like um, structure around the leg and the thigh. In the leg, it is called a fascia cruis. Cruis, cura means leg. And in the thigh, it is called a fascia lata. And the function of these um, stocking-like um, structures is to help in the re venous return of the blood. So when you're walking, the muscles contract. Within those muscles, you have veins. And you have that mechanism actually 
pumping your venous blood back to the heart. All right, so get your clickers out. So I'm going to give you a little bit of time, so read quickly, because we have a lot of material to cover. Apparently it went offline again. All right, so let's take this very quickly. I'm going to actually post it up. We had have, um, apparently seeing there's some problem with power, um, turning point. So this is a 44-year-old man who presents to the emergency department with an infected grade 2. On physical examination, the digit is warm to touch and there's a collection of pus under the nail bed. Which of the following lymph nodes will most likely be the first to enlarge? So the first thing that we have to realize is that the great toe is on the medial aspect of the lower limb. So therefore, we need to ask ourselves which vessel drains the medial side of the lower limb. It has to be the great saphenous vein. And therefore, that great saphenous vein is going to drain into the femoral vein along in the inguinal region. What group of lymph nodes is going to be the superficial group of inguinal or vertical inguinal lymph nodes. Everybody gets that? Yes? Superficial. Okay. We didn't do question one. So this is the same thing, and this is exactly what happens in your Grace questions. Same question, but different location. Okay, so we have, in this case, we have an infected fifth toe. So we have to remember that we had the great toe, which was on the middle side. Now we're going to have the fifth toe, which is on the lateral side. So it means, therefore, we need to ask ourselves which vessel is going to drain it. It's going to be the small saphenous. And the first stop will be the popliteal group of lymph nodes. And once deep, it's going to stay deep meaning that after that um, regional lymph node is going to drain into your vertical group of deep lymph nodes that you find in the inguinal region. Clear? I don't understand why this is happening. So this is the one that we did. All right. So let's look at the gluteal region. Does anybody not know where the gluteal region is? Okay, that's good. So... Just as we had the upper limb, we're going to talk about the gluteal region, and there are going to be muscles in the superficial group and in the deep group. So here we have the muscles of the superficial group, and it's going to be the gluteus maximus, medius, minimus, as well as the tensor fascia lata. In the deep group, we're going to have piriformis, obturator internus, superior gemellus, inferior gemellus, and the quadratus femoris. The muscles of the superficial group, they are going to be called the adductors of the hip. And those of the deep group are going to be called the lateral rotators of the thigh. Okay? So let's look at them. So here is the gluteus maximus, which is a big rounded muscle, which everybody likes to look at. If you reflect it, here you can see it being reflected. So it's been cut. So when you get down to the cadaver lab, you're going to realize that we have another group of muscles. Here is a medius, which will be found just below the gluteus maximus. Yeah, this is supposed to be, this is supposed to be gluteus maximus as cut and reflected here. What we're saying here is that the next muscle, just above gluteus maximus, or just below gluteus maximus, is going to be your gluteus medius. And then if you cut away your gluteus medius, you're going to find your gluteus minimus. Okay? Now, so, just as we have the functions, we said that the muscles of the superficial group, they are going to be called abductors of the hip. And we have this muscle here, which is called the tensor fascia lata. And the responsibility of this muscle is actually in the name, it tenses that fascia lata. And that fascia lata is a condensation of fascia that you're going to find in the thigh, and we said that that condensation in the thigh would have been 
the fasciolata. So the fasciolata, I should say, forms a condensation, and that condensation, the lateral side of the thigh, is going to be called the iliotibial tract. And that iliotibial tract is going to run from the ilium all the way down to the just below the knee joint in the tibial region. And that gluteus maximus, as you can see, inserts into that iliotibial tract. The function of the gluteus maximus is extension of the hip and stabilizer of the knee. So it is the most powerful extensor of the lower limb. So it is very, very important when you're seated and you want to stand and get into the standing position, your gluteus maximus is what is actually working. Now, your gluteus medius and minimus, they medially rotate the femur or the thigh. We have one more muscle. So we have gluteus medius, minimus, tensor fascia lata. And if you realize, their innervation is going to be by your superior gluteal nerve. So I want you to put a star by that. All of the muscles in the gluteal region are innervated by the superior gluteal nerve except the gluteus maximus. You would say that you expect the gluteus maximus to be superior, so it's going to be in, uh, supplied by the superior gluteal nerve. That doesn't happen. The gluteus maximus is supplied by the inferior gluteal nerve. You have your deep group of muscles, and just as you saw piriformis being a landmark muscle in the pelvis, piriformis is going to be a landmark muscle in the gluteal region. Above piriformis, on a superior aspect, you're going to have the superior gluteal nerves or vessels, the superior gluteal artery, superior gluteal vein, and the superior gluteal nerve. Below piriformis, you're going to have the inferior gluteal vessels. Also before below piriformis, you're going to have this nerve here, which will be the biggest nerve that you would ever see in your life, unless you go into veterinary medicine, and that is going to be your sciatic nerve. Right next to your sciatic nerve, you have this nerve here, which is going to be the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve of the thigh. So let's name the muscles of a deep group. So here we have piriformis. We have this muscle here, which is the first gemellus. So this is superior gemellus. In between the two gemellus, so this is superior gemellus, this is inferior gemellus. In between this, you're going to have the obturator internus. When you get down to the lab, you would realize this is a tendon of the obturator internus. And then we have this muscle here, which is going to be called your quadratus femoris. What do all of these deep muscles do? They laterally rotate the thigh, and they abduct the hip. So what I like to remember them as, as the penguin muscles. So remember how penguins walk. They first of all have to laterally rotate the thigh, and then they abduct the hip. So they walk like this. Okay, so P for piriformis, P for penguin muscles. So therefore, you can actually remember them like that. Good. So, coming back to what we said. So therefore, it means there that we have a nerve which is responsible for abduction of the hip, and those that nerve is going to be the superior gluteal nerve, and it's going to be the muscles that are going to be affected are going to be the gluteus medius, minimus, and your tensor fascia lata. Now, as I said, once you are walking during the swing phase, it means, therefore, that you are effectively standing on one lower limb. So if I am standing on one lower limb like this, it means, therefore, that my center of gravity now has actually gone out of the plane. And if you can feel, you'd realize that this hip is abducting to make sure that the pelvis doesn't fall. That was, that's what happens in a normal patient. Now, if you have an injury to your superior gluteal nerve, it means, therefore, that this stabilization of the hip would not happen. And what happens? You have tilting of the foot to the opposite side. Everybody gets that? Yes? I guess you guys must be bored to death. Nobody's actually talking. Good? So, when that happens, what we can appreciate is that, yes, 
All right. So, excuse my lab. So during this thing, the swing phase, right? What am I doing? I'm actually standing on one lower limb. So in order for my pelvis to be stabilized, my abductors of the opposite side have to work so that my pelvis remains in a straight line. That's what normally happens in a healthy individual. Now if my gluteus medius and minimus is not working due to an injury to the superior gluteal nerve, it means that I cannot do that. So what happens? I cannot stabilize my pelvis so my limb drops on the opposite side. Make sense? At the same time, it means that the equilibrium at the pelvis has been lost. So this limb has become longer. So it means every time that I hit the ground, I have problems actually clearing during this swing phase. So how do I accommodate? I would do stepping gate. Alright? So I can do that. Or, in order to lift the lower limb off the ground, I can swing to the opposite side. So most of you would have seen people walking like this. That's what they're trying to do. Okay? Injury to the superior gluteal nerve. All right. So this is basically what I've just said there. So once we have the hip tilting to the opposite side, that is called a Trendelenburg test. We normally ask the patient to stand on one limb, and if the hip tips to the opposite side, we call that a positive Trendelenburg sign. Not to be confused with a test. The test is basically when you're talking for talking about venous insufficiency. All right, let me just make sure it's not working at all. All right, so this is the question. It's a 24-year-old diabetic patient who presents to the emergency room with a deep abscess to the right gluteal region. In preparation for incision, this is incision and drainage, the attending surgeon asks the resident what might be the likely com complications if the abscess spreads to the superior gluteal nerve. So it affects the superior gluteal nerve. And we talked about that high stepping gait. So let's look at the nerves of the gluteal region. Very simple. First, we orient ourselves with this muscle here, which is called a piriformis muscle. Above the piriformis, you're going to have a superior gluteal nerve, um, which is going to innervate your gluteus medius, minimus, and your tensor fascia lata. On the inferior edge of piriformis, we're going to have this structure here. Remember? We said that this was a cut edge of gluteus maximus. So this is your gluteus maximus being supplied by your inferior gluteal. The biggest nerve you're going to see in your life, sciatic. This nerve being posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. And here we can see going under this ischial tuberosity heading towards the perineal region. This is going to be the pudendal vessels. Pudendal nerve. Okay? Now, innovation to the piriformis muscle is going to be nerve to the piriformis innervation to the superior gemellus is going to because it's very very close to the piriformis it's going to be nerve to the piriformis here we have this muscle here which is called obturator internus the innervation is nerve to the obturator internus here we have the inferior gemellus because it's close to the obturator internus it has the same innervation so it has its innervation being nerve to the obturator internus and here we have this muscle being a quadratus femoris and this innervation is to this muscle is going to be nerve to the quadratus femoris all right if only anatomy was that simple okay so in the gluteal region it's very very easy good right so why are we stressing all of this? So here you can see a patient with the gluteal region being exposed. And what we are basically 
trying to stress here is that you can see the different nerves, the superior gluteal, inferior gluteal, and this nerve here, which is going to be a sciatic nerve. So you don't see a nice big chunk of gluteal maximus. I see a nice chunk of meat, and it just goes yeek, and inject um, medication into that gluteal region. What you need to do is that you need to draw or divide the buttocks into four quadrants, and you always go into the upper outer quadrant so that you avoid the sciatic nerve. Okay? If you go in any one of the quadrants, internal or the upper, superior upper quadrant or superior uh, inferior inner quadrant, it means that you're going to hit these nerves. And your patient is going to remember you, and you are going to remember your patient because they're going to sue the daylights out of you. Okay? So, very, very important anatomical landmarks. Why is this happening? All right. Okay. So looking at the arteries of the gluteal region, once again, above piriformis, you're going to have your superior gluteal arteries. Below piriformis, your inferior gluteal arteries. And also forming an anastomosis around the um, head of the femur, we have two other arteries coming off of your deep femoral, and they're going to be the f medial femoral circumflex artery and your lateral femoral circumflex artery. Now, the medial one is the one that actually provides much more of the blood supply to the gluteal region. So here you can see your medial circumflex going towards the back, and here you can see your lateral femoral circumflex. Okay, so here's your medial going towards the hip joint, and here's your lateral. So just as we have the motor branches, we have cutaneous branches, which is actually going to give us sensation. This is just basically for your information. We have your superior cluneal nerves, as you can see here, your medial cluneal nerves towards the medial aspect of the gluteal region, inferior cluneal nerves, and then you have this one here, which is going to be called your perforating cluneal nerves. The upper outer quadrant is going to be innervated by this nerve here, which is going to be called your iliohypogastric nerve. So upper outer quadrant is going to be innervated or gets its innervation from this one here, which is called your superior cluneal nerve. Cluneal means butt and your, in, and your iliohypogastric nerve. So generally in diabetic patients, although we try as much as possible not to have abscess formations, they are very, very prone to infections, staph, staph, uh, staph can actually get into the gluteal region and you can get abscesses which is just basically a collection of pus below the skin. So this is a 55 year old diabetic patient who presented to the emergency room complaining of fever. Normally when you have an infection you get in fever, signs of inflammation, intense pain in the gluteal region after being given an intramuscular injection. He claims that he has always had the injection placed in the upper outer quadrant, where the good nurse or doctor would put it, and he has never had any problems like this in the past. On physical examination, there is a collection of pus just below the skin, which of the following pairs of nerves are most likely responsible for the transmission of the patient's pain if the abscess is confined to the upper outer quadrant of the gluteal region. So basically, if we looked at the slide that we had here, we'd realize in the upper outer quadrant, you have it being innervated by, so cutaneous innervation by the iliohypogastric the nerve as well as your cluneal nerves, superior cluneal nerves. Looking at the hip joint, we would realize that the hip joint is built for stability you have the head of the femur going into the acetabulum, and you have ligaments which would help support that ball and socket joint. So you have surfaces such as the acetabular labrum, the lunate surfaces which actually help deepen that joint so that it can actually help stabilize the hip joint. Now moving on, very important, the ligaments, they form a capsule 
or certain ligaments form a capsule around that ball and socket joint. Now, I want you to remember these ligaments because they become very, very important. The first ligament is called the iliofemoral ligament. And if you look at the name, it's actually going to tell you where it comes from and where it's going to. So the iliofemoral ligament, it prevents hyperextension. It's found anteriorly. Another one for running from the pubis to the femur is going to be the pubofemoral ligament. And it prevents hyperabduction abduction. Both of them are found anteriorly. Posteriorly, we have just this main one, which is called the ischiofemoral ligament. As you can see here, the ischiofemoral ligament, there is a defect of coverage right here. So it means, therefore, that posterior dislocations of the femur is much more um, prevalent than anterior displacements of the femur. Why? Because you have much more ligamental coverage in the anterior aspect as opposed to the posterior aspect. You also have other ligaments. As you can see here, this is ligament of the head of the femur. And also, we have this one here, which is called your transverse acetabular ligament, right, which we're going to talk about in the clinical lectures. Arteries around the hip joint, we talked about the medial and lateral circumflex femoral arteries. So here you can have the or here you have the femoral artery dividing into a deep femoral. On the medial side, you have the medial circumflex. On the lateral side, you have the lateral circumflex. And in the head, you have this obturator artery. Now, generally, this obturator artery gets smaller with age. It's very patent in young children. However, as you get older, it becomes obliterated, and it cannot supply the, or it gives very little supply to the head of the femur. Why is all of this important? As we said, here is the upper body, trunk, pelvis. All of the weight has been transferred into the lower limb. Here's the shaft. And we have this area here, which acts as the support beam or the connection between the weight that's transferred from the upper body into the lower body. Now, as you can realize, if this um, area becomes weakened because of osteoporosis, or its strength decreases with age, this can be the actual site where you can have fractures. There are two types of fractures. There, clinically, we can describe an intracapsular fracture and an extracapsular fracture. So the intracapsular fracture means a fracture of the head and neck of the femur. And as you can realize, you have blood vessels which actually traverse the neck, and these blood vessels are called retinocular arteries that come off of your medial and lateral circumflex. So once you have a fracture, it means that these blood vessels are ruptured. You have avascular necrosis without blood supply to the head of the femur. And as you can just imagine, if you have no blood supply, this bone breaks down and you will not be able to support the lower limb. Okay, so intracapsular within the capsule extra capsular with or outside of the capsule. So you have these coverings here. What I would like you to do is probably take this extra capsular and put it on the opposite side of the line because it gives a kind of a false appearance as if it is intracapsular. Okay? So therefore, an intratrochanteric fracture, here's your greater trochanter, here's your lesser trochanter, will be extra capsular. Now this becomes very important because if it is an extra capsular fracture, it means that you can just probably put some pins and you can actually stabilize pins and screws and you can stabilize a fracture. However, if you have an intracapsular fracture, it means that you would have to probably replace the neck as well as the head of the femur. Okay, you would have to do a prosthetic operation. Prosthetic operation. Looking at the anastomosis, we have the anastomosis which forms around the hip joint so we have the first one that comes from above. It's called a cruciate anastomosis. So it means it's going to have an upper contribution. That upper contribution comes from the inferior gluteal artery. We have one contribution from the medial side coming off of the deep femoral artery. The artery is going to be called the medial circumflex. On the lateral side, we're going to have the lateral femoral 
sorry, the lateral circumflex artery, and then inferiorly, also coming up of the deep femoral, we have another branch, which is going to be called the first perforators. So, cruciate anastomosis, inferior gluteal, first perforator, your lateral circumflex branch, as well as your medial circumflex. Now, you may be asking yourself, why is that important? You need to remember that the inferior gluteal artery is a branch which comes off of the internal iliac, which is a pelvic source. The deep femoral artery comes off of the external iliac. You remember that the external iliac changes its name after it passes under the iguanal ligament to become the femoral artery. So therefore, the cruciate anastomosis is an anastomosis between the internal iliac and the external iliac. Everybody gets that? Yes? Inferior gluteal is a branch of what? The internal iliac, which is the artery of excellence or the one that provides blood supply in the pelvis. Right? So you have your common iliac dividing into an internal iliac as well as an external iliac. After the external iliac passes under the inguinal ligament, it has a name change. It now becomes the femoral artery. The femoral artery, or I should say the deep femoral artery, is a branch of the femoral artery. So it means, therefore, that the crucial anastomosis is uh, anastomosis between the internal iliac as well as the external iliac. Okay? Get that? Yes. Let's continue. There's another anastomosis which you have in Greece. I've just actually put it down here for you. Um, those of you who do the Grace question, you have another anastomosis called the trochanteric anastomosis. And that is basically formed between the descending superior gluteal, your inferior gluteal, and the branches of the lateral and medial circumflex arteries. Okay. So let's quickly look at the thigh. So once again, we need to think in terms of compartments. And in the thigh, we have three compartments. We said that the thigh was the region between the hip and the knee. And we, once we think in terms of compartments, the anatomy becomes very, very easy. In the thigh, we're going to have three major compartments. We're going to have an anterior compartment, a medial compartment, and a posterior compartment. So the anterior compartment, you would realize that we have a nerve of excellence, and that nerve of excellence is going to be your femoral nerve. You also have the functions, or the, what the muscles do as a group, and they are going to be flexors of the thigh extensors of the knee. In the medial compartment, we have the muscles. They are normally the adductor group of muscles, and what they are going to do, they are going to adduct the thigh. The nerve of excellence that provides innovation to most of the muscles of the medial compartment is going to be your obturator nerve. Now, since we have that the leg is like a cylinder, it means just by intuition, you're going to have some muscles being boundary muscles or interface muscles. And those muscles are going to be the pectineus as well as the hamstring part. Sorry, it's going to be the pectineus as well as the adductor part of the adductor magnus. The pectineal muscle is an interface muscle between the anterior compartment and the medial compartment. The adductor part of the adductor magnus is an interface muscle between the medial compartment and the posterior compartment. What does that mean? In some books, you're going to realize that you have the pectineus being part of the medial compartment. In other books, you would realize it's going to be part um, that the pectineus muscle is going to be part of the anterior compartment. What I want you to remember is that the pectineus can have a dual innervation from the anterior compartment as well as from the medial compartment. The posterior compartment, as a group, they're going to extend the thigh and they're going to flex the knee. The nerve of excellence in the posterior compartment is going to be the sciatic nerve. And that sciatic nerve is going to have contributions from the tibial branch as well as the common fibula. 
So sciatic nerve, aka tibial branch, and common fibula. So let's look at the posterior compartment. So here's the posterior compartment of the thigh. And we're going to look at a group of muscles which are called the hamstring group. In order to be a hamstring muscle, you need to have your, the origin in the ischial tuberosity. And for those of you who are wondering, the ischial tuberosity is what you sit on. So it's this little bump that you see here. And the muscles must cross the knee joint. So you must have its insertion here, and it must cross the knee joint. So the first muscle that we have is this muscle here, which is going to be called the semimembranosus muscle, much more membrane than tendon. And then we have another one which is going to be called your semitendinosus, so it's much more tendon than muscle. So it's better seen here. So superficially on the medial side you have semitendinosus, and below that you're going to have semimembranosus. On the lateral side, you're going to have biceps femoris, long head and short head. The long head has its origin in the ischial tuberosity, and it crosses the knee joint, so it's a true hamstring muscle. The short head does not have its origin in the ischial tuberosity, however, it crosses the knee joint. All of the hamstring muscles are going to be innervated by the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve. So therefore, it's means that the short head of the biceps femoris will be innervated by the common fibula nerve. So that's the exception. As a group, what they do, they flex the leg at the knee, extends the thigh at the hip, they immediately rotate the thigh and the leg. That is the, on the medial side. And it would make sense because it's medially on the lateral side, what they do is that they're going to laterally rotate the thigh and the leg. Sci sciatic nerve, two nerves bound up in perineum, and that is going to be the common fibular nerve as well as the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve. All right, where does it come from, or where can you locate it in the cadaver lab? Below piriformis. Okay, these are just variations that you may see, but sciatic nerve, two nerves bound up in one common sheet, tibial nerve, and common fibular nerve. All right, so let's look at the medial compartment. We said that the medial compartment are going to be the adductors, and we have a longus, a brevis, a magnus. We also had other muscles, which are going to be the pectineus and gracilis, as well as the obturator externus. So once we look at the thigh, we're going to realize that we can see the anteromedial thigh. So the anterior compartment as well as part of the medial compartment. In the medial compartment, we said we're going to have the adductor group of muscles. In the anterior compartment, we're going to have the iliopsoas, rectus femoris, vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, and vastus intermedius. Rectus femoris, vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, and vastus intermedius, they are called quadriceps femoris. So let's look at the medial compartment. So on the medial side of the thigh, we have the different adductors. So here we can see the adductor longus, nerve of excellence, obturator nerve. It adducts the thigh as well as medially rotates it. Here you can see the adductor brevis. Once again, the obturator nerve adducts and medially rotates the thigh. And then we have the big one, which is called the adductor magnus. And the adductor part is what we are interested in in the medial compartment. There's a hamstring part, which is basically in the posterior compartment. And as we said, it is innervated by the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve. What is this action? Adduction and medial rotation of the thigh. Very, very simple stuff. Here you have the other muscles in the medial compartment. This one here is going to be your pectineus, which forms part of the femoral triangle. And then you have this long slender muscle here, which is going to be the gracilis. All innervated by the obturator nerve. In the anterior compartment, we said 
we have this muscle here, which is going to be called the rectus femoris, straight muscle. On the medial side, we have this muscle, which is in the form of a teardrop. So it's on the medial side. Another word for teardrop in Greek is vastus. So we have a medial teardrop, and that's going to be the medial, uh, I should say, the vastus medialis. So if we have a vastus medialis on the medial side, on the lateral side, we're going to have a vastus lateralis. And if we remove or reflect this muscle here, which is the rectus femoris, we're going to find the vastus intermedius. So vastus medialis, vastus lateralis, vastus intermedius, and here we can see that the rectus femoris has been cut. All of these tendons, so all of these groups of muscles, you have one, two, three, four quadriceps, four muscle bellies, they form this group here, and they're called, they're called the quadriceps femoris. So all of them converge into a tendon, which then passes over the patella, and then inserts in the femur via the patella ligament. We have other muscles of the anterior compartment. This one here is iliopsoas, which will flex the hip. We have this long muscle here, which is called sartorius. And what's important about sartorius is going to flex at the hip. As you can see, it crosses the hip joint. It also causes, crosses the knee joint. So it's going to flex the hip and it's going to flex the leg at the knee. So we call this the talus muscle. Well, for those people who do yoga, when you sit into that concentration medic, uh, meditating pose, that's a muscle that you feel stretching, and that is your sartorius muscle. This is an anatomical finding or that we can see on the medial aspect of the lower limb. We have three tendons coming together on the medial side, and each of these tendons represents or have, has a contribution from the different compartments. So here we can see it's sartorius, and the sartorius comes from the anterior compartment. There's another one and another muscle or tendon that we can see on, this, on the medial side, and that's going to be the gracilis coming from the medial compartment, and we have this one from the posterior compartment being the semitendinosus. So three of them from three different compartments. How do you remember them? They come together to form a goose foot, and how do you remember which is which? Sartorius, gracilis, semitendinosus. So they say, say grace before T. Say sartorius, grace, gracilis, and T being the tendinous or semitendinosus. Okay, so that's how you remember that. All right, so let's take, it's now, okay, let's take a 10-minute break. Let's come back and see if we can finish the lecture. Story.